Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. We have two primary ways to regulate our feelings and emotions and establish a state of what's called homeostasis, which is essentially just go back to normal, calm, work healthy uh, states of being. To process any feeling or emotional reaction is one, to talk about it. Human beings uh, literally co-regulate very, very well. We're social species, so when we um, find someone who's sympathetic, who listens well, who creates a safe container, and we get vulnerable and we disclose what we're feeling, we literally limbically co-regulate. Uh, limbically co-regulate simply means that my emotional state, when I'm upset and I talk to you and you're calm, I will gravitate to your state of being. My body will literally start to breathe like your body. My musculature contractions will release. Um, human beings naturally go to the state of other human beings. We are deeply emotionally contagious. So when we get vulnerable and we're with someone who is um, in a positive place, or at least a serene state, and we share about what we're feeling, then we naturally gravitate towards their physiological state. <clears throat> we go from withdrawal, which is one of the two primary states, to approach, which is a relaxed, open, broadened, and build state. So that's all good. You can just find someone and talk about your feelings, and you'll naturally repair. Uh, the other way is simply to feel and to self-soothe while you feel whatever it is that's emotionally distressing. So you've uh, had a close friend, that close friend moves away, you feel sad. Uh, and if we simply sit, pay attention to the grief and self-soothe, which means breathe, relax, drink a warm cup of tea, be with the sadness, then the sadness will pass on its own. Emotions, literally, when they are felt, not interrupted, when they move through the body completely, they essentially disperse. That's called auto-regulation. Okay? So you can find someone when you're upset, talk about it, or you can sit, pay attention, allow the feeling to uh, flow through your body, and breathe, relax, sit in a comfortable chair, take care of yourself, and the feeling will pass as well. Okay, those are the two healthy ways we process uh, negative affects, negative feelings, uh, difficult negative emotions. All good. <clears throat> On the other hand, most of us try to do an end run around that. And the Buddha had this teaching called the Paticca Samapada, known as the cause or the chain of suffering, and he talks about how suffering 
and needless stress and disappointment and agitation and dismay and discouragement and all that is uh, becomes a deeply embedded part of our experience. And this is the story of how suffering works, first of all, which is the Buddha says, when we have a difficult, painful feeling, which he calls dukkha vedana, you don't have to know that, that's just the original language, when we feel uncomfortable, most of us don't want to get vulnerable, find someone and talk of, talk about it, nor do we want to just sit with the feeling and allow it to arise and pass. We try to do end runs around it, and there's three ways that we do these end runs. In the Buddha's lingo, this end run is called craving. Craving is the attempt to not have to process our feelings. It's our, our attempt to escape our feelings. Not process, but bypass right around it, okay? So there's three ways we try to get rid of our feelings. The first is we seek, we crave sensual pleasures, things that feel good. Things like Netflix, yay, uh, social media, right? Uh, we love going to the phone, uh, looking our, at our messages, looking at the Instagram, looking at the Facebook, looking at, you know, whatever feed is coming in. Then there's the shopping, going on Amazon and buying a gizmo that we don't need. And I'm just as guilty as the next person. I go to my local... Um, second-hand clothing stores and when I'm having a bad day for some uh, obvious reason, which is it raises my dopamine levels, I will very often go and buy a hoodie that I definitely do not need because I have a whole collection of them. Um, so that's the first way we try to do an end run around painful or negative feelings. We try to find something that feels really good so that we replace the bad feeling with a good feeling. This is not rocket science, pretty obvious, but still worth knowing. Buddha says we also, as a form of sensual pleasures, we start clinging to ideas, views and opinions, stories, because those also feel good. It's more fun to think and fantasize and uh, tell stories about how much of a shithead Trump is over and over rather than feel our emotional pain. Okay, but that's an end run around feelings as well. Now the second way the Buddha said we try to do an end run is we uh, seek out oblivion. This is called vibhavatana. The first seeking pleasure is kamatana. So we try to find something that will obliterate what we feel, make it all go away. We try to become numb. And we see this with alcohol, with opiate addictions, with people who get depressed and just seek the comfort of sleep, just trying to essentially nullify, seek out a state of numbness, complete lack of awareness, just a, 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 even dissociation can be an attempt to push away any negative discomfort, uh, discomfort in the body, anything that feels uncomfortable. So, okay, so far we've got, instead of feeling our feelings or talking about our feelings, we sometimes seek 
sensual pleasures, things that feel good, things that make us feel safe, like our views and opinions, or we seek out uh, an anesthetized, uh, completely unaware oblivion. The third way we try to get around in tonight's topic, the third way we try to do find an escape from our feelings, from our underlying states of discomfort and distress, is by trying to become someone different, someone better. We try to, in today's lingo, self-improve. We try to become me 2.0, the me that will never experience emotional pain, that will never feel vulnerable or sad or lonely. We try to find, a, attain a state by wherein we will not ever have to feel wounded. And the Buddha says, well, unfortunately, there is no such state. The first noble truth is in life, guess what? There's a lot of shitty things that happen. We get not only to enjoy the old age, the sickness and the death part, but he said it's even more extensive than that, the emotional wounds that will happen in everyone's life. We're also going to feel sad, sorrow, lamentation. We're going to feel overwhelmed, grief. We're going to lose people and feel bereft about it. Despair. There's going to be times where we're just miserable. And the Buddha says we're even going to experience times where we don't get what we want. Go figure. So, no matter how you live your life, even if you are born Madonna, or I guess more contemporary Lady Gaga, or whatever, uh, you will experience a lot of shitty things that will happen. So there's no way around. Human beings have an, an entire array of feelings. It's inevitable that we're going to feel shitty. Sometimes that's a clinical term. <laughs> and uh, so there's no way around it. Uh, but we do try to find a way around it. And one of the most contemporary ways is we try to become bigger, faster, stronger. We try to become more intelligent. We try to attain something. We try to become different as a way to feel less vulnerable. This is... Uh, in the Buddha's teachings, interestingly enough, he says this is the reason why suffering continues for so long. At the end of the day, people can give up their addictions to sensual pleasures. They can give up their addiction to numbing behaviors and things that create oblivion. But the hardest one to give up is this idea that there's this better, more complete, more lovable me that I just cannot allow myself just to be as I am and just try with what I have to accept and to be with whatever I need to feel rather than try to escape it by becoming someone different. So this is a source of addiction because addiction is an attempt, again, to not connect with other people and disclose how we feel. To not simply be with emotions and feelings unfolding naturally and dispersing. All addictions are attempts to bypass these two natural affective processes and to replace them with substances or activities that 
don't work, that just require more and more frantic activities. And also, addiction uh, isolates us because it dissuades us from reaching out and connecting with others and becoming vulnerable and sharing what's going on. Instead, the addictions of things we gravitate towards when we feel stress, whether it's numbing or things that feel good or attempts to become someone better, all of those things eventually isolate us. They don't connect us with others. Now, there's obvious drawbacks that are clear about each of these forms of uh, shortcuts, trying to not feel what we need to process. If we seek addictively, compulsively things that feel good, they will evaporate quickly. No matter what it is, you buy an iPad, you, by the time you get home and you look at it, it doesn't have the same glow as it had in the Apple iStore. Isn't that amazing? And the, and the Apple, the iStore, what do you call it, the iStore? I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. And the Apple, the Apple Store, every device has this sense of this glow to it. It feels so modern and sleek and thin and light and everything looks bright and it's like, I want this. And then by the time we, I get home, you know, if I ever have the money to get something from them, you know, by the time you get home, it's like, oh, okay, you know, now I have that. But also, we habituate to things very quickly. Famous study showed that the amount of dopamine released for, uh, and the amount of pleasure one experiences has to very quickly double to get the same amount of pleasure from any activity. So, for example, they did this study with businessmen. When they would get a certain amount of feeling of success and validity by doing a deal for $5,000, to get the same amount of pleasure and dopamine, about six months later, they had to do a deal for 10000 And then a year later for 20000 And then two years later for 40000 And then up and up and up. It's the same with, uh, for me, was the same with uh, alcohol. <laughs> when I was uh, 12, I remember I could like feel pretty damn good having a couple of beers. By the time I went to college and was drinking myself into hospitals, it was about 12 beers I needed to go out and face any social setting and then up. Um, and then you can guess where that got me 25 years, 24 years ago, I, I wound up in recovery. So we habituate to the things we seek out for pleasure because the brain is not set up to keep giving us the same amount of dopamine for, acti- for things that are readily available. The whole point of natural selection is that dopamine was a reward to encourage us to get, uh, Things to, to acquire things that were not so readily available. So if it's easy to get two beers from a store, eventually it's only going to reward you for four, eight, 16, and so forth. You're not going to get the same amount of pleasure until you get more and more. We habituate. The drawbacks of uh, oblivion is pretty obvious. There's not too many people who wind up opiate addicts or alcoholics or whatever 
who come back with, I'm just so glad that I spent my life numbed out. It creates a death-like state of apathy, paralysis, lack of agency, and it creates a death-like state that's even worse than simply if we had learned to feel our feelings or talk with someone about our negative emotions. But the drawbacks of trying to become someone better, to self-improve, are far more legion. The search for, at the very, the very outset, the search for a better version of myself, uh, trying to attain, become someone stronger, faster, smarter, funnier, uh, with, or with more knowledge, leaves me restless, it leaves me unsettled, it leaves me uh, unable to relax, and it definitely leaves me in a state where I can't just sit and be with whatever I need to feel and let it unfold. There's whole industries that are set up to help us in this uh, path of avoiding or trying to find an end run around what we feel. And none of them are bad ideas on the face of it, but if they play a part in this underlying or this core agenda of trying to present a bypass around the hard work of either feeling and processing negative affects or sharing negative affects, they can be very destructive. For example, all the mass market self-help books, the inspirational gurus, Tony Robbins and so forth, to the Gwyneth Paltrow's with the goops and all that, the CrossFits and the fitness regimes that provide an idea that if you just become really, really toned and fit with a lot of core strength, then you will become that you that is confident and you'll be able to go and get your needs met and all of this, these negative pesky feelings of loneliness and sadness will be so much in your rear view mirror. Um, even Buddhism and yoga is rife with this idea that if you just take some online course and pay a certain amount of money, then you will get something. And I don't think any, there's anything wrong with any of these things. It's fine to go to a gym. It's fine to take an online course. It's fine to read a self-help book. But if the underlying motivation is it's going to take me to a place where I don't have to, where I'm inoculated from pain, where I don't, where I won't feel sad or lonely, where I will finally arrive, where when it's driven by that compulsive need to become better, then it's part of the problem, not part of the solution. Self-improvement, though, on a much more psychological uh, level, actually can have really desultory negative effects on us. One, uh, the whole self-improvement ideal, which is that I am missing something, I'm lacking, there's something I need to get to become lovable or confident or uh, someone who is 
ready to embrace life, it reinforces what's called core shame. Core shame is a residue of a childhood where we don't get our needs met from our interpersonal life. We feel wounded, abandoned, rejected, shamed. We, something was not present. And the child explains this event to itself by making the inevitable conclusion, there's something unlovable about me. I'm not good enough. Because the child can't afford to think, oh, well, uh, my father, he's not available and is too distant, not because he's got avoidant attachment and grew up in a family system where he was told that you're not safe to connect with people on an emotionally vibrant level. No, the four-year-old doesn't do that. The four-year-old goes, essentially, if my father doesn't have enough time to stop and pay attention, or my mother or my older sister, it's because I am unlovable. There's something wrong with me. And the self-improvement message is essentially that there is something wrong with you. That if you just do this, if you were just a little bit more grateful, if you were just a little bit more, uh, uh, if you were not only practiced just a gratitude list every day, but if you did my five easy steps to becoming the better you, then you wouldn't have all these negative experiences happening to you. So it actually reinforces this underlying felt sense that this is not universal what I feel and that I can move through these feelings. It actually reinforces the idea that there's something wrong with you and that's why you feel lonely or sad or lack of, you don't feel worth or esteem. There is something wrong with you and you need to just do this course, and then you won't feel that way. So that's deeply, deeply implicated in uh, 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 part of the, uh, a really despairing process. The second negative uh, repercussions of self-improvement uh, is the avoidance coping it leads. It distracts our awareness from dealing with the underlying emotional wounds and it keeps us focused on essentially learning more and developing more and more tools and certificates and acquiring more information and knowledge and ideas and writing out more inventories, but it doesn't actually heal and spend time with the underlying a painful emotional feelings that we need to spend time with. There are plenty of people out there who've been hurt by really, really painful uh, romantic rejections and then feel really vulnerable. And they're understandably scared of becoming, uh, taking the risk to connect with other people again. And so... How easy is it, instead of doing that work of repairing those wounds, to instead buy books on how to be in a relationship? There's a whole industry of books out there, and you could spend the rest of your life, if you have been wounded by relationships, simply reading about it, but never actually addressing the underlying emotional pain that needs to be felt and shared about 
for us to feel confident enough again to be part of a, to go out there and expose ourselves. Of course, self-improvement, there's no end to it. It's interminable. It's ceaseless. Because every time you get a new certificate or uh, something that says you've completed a, a course or that you developed a new skill, guess what? We still feel shitty. We still have sadness, frustration, despair. And so there's this underlying sense of, oh, okay, I got to do more work on myself. Because clearly that, that last uh, course in online therapy didn't work. And then, but the worst part of the self-improvement agenda is that it actually exacerbates anxiety. It actually makes us have even more emotional wounds to deal with. And it works a little bit like this. I'll give you in a nutshell. Early on in life, in the period of time where we start socializing with peers, other kids our age, and when we start uh, developing and managing family relationships and so forth, the child starts to develop what's called a self-concept. The self-concept is essentially the idea of who I need to be to get love and to be acceptable from other people. It's an idea of what is lovable. And the more damaged a setting we grow up in, the narrower that self-concept is. So for some of us, we have to be big or confident or funny. We're not allowed to be sad or we're not allowed to be angry or we're not allowed to be frightened or we're not allowed to be curious or we're encouraged to be curious or we're encouraged to be sad but not encouraged to be uh, creative or we are encouraged to be creative but we're not encouraged. To, you get the idea. There's this very... Uh, there's this window of what is lovable as defined for by what gives us positive attention. And we seek out to be that self-concept. The problem is, of course, is that no one naturally fits into the self-concept. No one naturally feels the things that other people reward. No matter how accepting your friends are and your family is, there's still always going to be more of you than what fits into this socioculturally defined what is lovable. And whatever doesn't fit, which is known as your felt self, the part of your felt self that doesn't fit into the self-concept, the more it becomes different, the more feelings you feel you need to withhold and not show other people the more aspects and impulses of yourself you conceal, what happens is the more anxiety you feel. Because anxiety is nothing other than the discrepancy between what we feel and try to conceal from other people as opposed to what we feel confident in showing. The more we conceal and fail to disclose, the more anxiety. And self-improvement plays directly into this idea. Because what is it saying? It's saying there's something about the way you are right now that is not okay, that is not good enough, that is not complete, that is missing. 
that you have to become someone better or more com- more adept. You need more uh, skills or tools or insights or wisdom. So it creates, it only exacerbates the amount of anxiety because it's, as uh, Carl Rogers, the great American psychologist, says when there's a discrepancy between the way we feel, our felt self, and what we believe we need to show others, our self-concept, what we try to do is repress the parts of ourselves that we believe are unlovable. We try to get rid of our feelings. And so we do exactly what the Buddha says causes suffering. Instead of sitting and disclosing the parts of ourselves that are vulnerable, the part that says, I just feel ugly, unlovable, sad, overwhelmed. I don't, I feel, uh, angry. I feel just depressed. I don't want to, I don't want to be a parent or, uh, uh, I don't want to be, uh, in a relationship or I do want, whatever it is, these feelings that we believe are unlovable, the more we try to do an end run around it, the more anxiety we feel then self-improvement can play directly into that. So liberation comes from letting go of this fruitless hunt for things that can get rid of feelings and emotions. It's what the Buddha called it demands a renunciation, a letting go of any compulsive attempt to bypass our pure felt experience. Any compulsion that we automatically do when we start to feel uh, emotionally isolated or worried or vulnerable, anything that we immediately gravitate to, whether it's exercise, to Netflix, to yoga, anything that is essentially I cannot feel this. Well, yoga, you can feel it, so I'm not going to lump it in there. But a lot of other activities essentially are distractions from the felt experience. Anything that does an end run around the felt experience is unskillful. And the Buddha says we have to put it aside. In the Buddha's Dhammachakana Pavatana, the first teaching he gave, which is one of the most important moments in Buddhism, um, Siddhartha says, liberation occurs with the renunciation and the abandonment and relinquishment of all of our craving. And craving is, again, that attempt to not feel what we're feeling. So he's saying the, the foundation of emotional health is by stopping trying to escape our, what we feel. Then in a, a, a very important sutta, the Yoke Sutta, the Buddha says, when, one, when we don't understand that discomfort arises and passes on its own and doesn't require a craving to alleviate it, when we don't understand the drawbacks of constantly needing to change and improve ourselves, we become obsessed with change just for the sake of change. We constantly need to do something. We can never relax. And he says it becomes a shackle that hinders us, a yoke, something that binds us. Finally, on to one of the most important, most famous suttas of the Buddha, 
Buddha in this sutta says that people who try to um, escape how they feel, when they do feel, when they can't get around it, when they do have to feel their feelings, they have a tendency to take it very personally, identify with their feelings, and become freaked out by their emotional states. And in so doing, they make their emotional pain twice as unbearable. Whereas people who have developed the practice of just sitting and observing and feeling whatever needs to be felt or disclosing it, those people feel, in his words, half the amount of pain. Because, well, I'll read you what he says. When an unskillful individual experiences pain, they identify with it, they take it personally, they become distraught and they resist it. And so they experience two kinds of pain, the physical and the mental. They become obsessed with ending pain as fast as possible, and so they seek distractions. They fail to understand that there's any other way to deal with painful feelings other than by seeking things that feel good or make it all go away. So that's what you don't want to do. When a skillful person experiences a painful feeling, they don't resist it, they don't become obsessed by it, and they don't crave and escape from it. They see the drawbacks of compulsively seeking to escape what they feel. They stay present and observe pain as it arises and passes. The wise person feels pain, but doesn't identify with it. They simply observe it with detachment. And so they only feel one kind of pain, not two. They feel physically the pain, but all of the mental components, they don't. So it's called the uh, Arrow Sutta, and it's one of the most profound moments where the Buddha lays out in the most clear, detailed language, what uh, one of his great insights on reducing suffering. So in insight meditation and spiritual practice, we sit, we observe, we welcome, we don't run away, we don't resist what we feel. We learn to self-soothe while a painful feeling or negative feeling arises. We learn to take care of ourselves and stay with it until the pain or the emotionally wounding feeling moves through the body until it disperses. We don't cut it off. And of course, the more we cut off our feelings, they just come back. All emotions that are cut off remain latent. That's why, for example, people deflect anger from one situation onto other situations. The guy who in a job is yelled at all the time by his boss and doesn't feel he can stop and say, hey, enough, and feel his anger, if he cuts off his anger, he'll come home and he'll scream at his kids or he'll take out violence on his dog or his one of his loved ones. He'll The anger is still there. It's been cut off and it will be displaced onto other people. There's no end run around feelings 
We have to spend time with them. If we don't, they become dysregulated and they become deflected onto entirely innocent people. Now last, before we do the meditation, accepting oneself is not resignation and it's not surrender. When we own and disclose our feelings, what actually happens is the opposite. We do change, but the change is not driven by the sense that there's something unlovable or missing or the matter with me. There's no sense of I'm lacking anything. When we can feel and then share about it, we actually develop naturally what's called broaden and build, where we become more curious, more confident, more exploratory. And then we gravitate towards creative endeavors and we learn new new skills. But none of that is driven by any sense that there's something the matter with me, that there's something missing or lacking. And so there's no sense if we try something and it doesn't work out, that it's because there's something wrong with us. There's no desperate need to get approval from other people because we already have that, because we've already shared how we feel. So when we truly stop and feel and disclose, it doesn't mean that we don't continue to grow, but it's not from a self-improvement regime. It's simply from a regime of I love who I am, I deserve to be happy. I'm going to try this thing out. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with me at all. I'll just try something else. And that's of a fuck of a lot better way to learn, right? Than I desperately need to do this or else I won't get in a relationship or won't be happy. So that's tonight's talk. I hope that there was something of interest in it for you. And now we're going to do a meditation where we're going to actually develop the tools to sit with negative feelings and to self-soothe. So we're going to put this into practice. So I'd like you to find a really comfortable position. And please do uh, help support the meeting financially. We're not sustained by any other entity other than the people who come. So thanks for that. Closing the eyes. And if you like, take a moment and just allow your body to sway from one side to the other, front and back, until your body comes to a nice, settled position where your body determines what is comfortable, not your mind, but your body.
So we'll start by taking a few breaths and just use that to help relax the body. So take a full, complete in-breath through the nose. And if your nose is stepped up, like mine can be at times through the mouth, but just breathe in full. And if you, while you do, lift your shoulders up like you're lifting up two really heavy, you know, suitcases. And you got to quickly run across an airport with them. And then as you breathe out, drop your shoulders. And sometimes I literally windmill my shoulders back or just literally lift them and just rotate them so that the shoulders are slightly back and my chest is really open and there's like, there is a much more open space in the chest and there's also so much uh, research that shows when the chest is open in a broad state, it literally can help us process negative affects. And then a second full complete in-breath and you can either, if you like, push out your belly or pull it in. Whatever feels like a appropriate for you, but you're just creating an artificially tense state in your abdominal muscles, either by contracting them or pushing them out. And then as you breathe out, just soften your belly, allowing it to release into a very, very settled state. And so many of the nerves the vagus nerves that go up through the insula and tell your midbrain whether you're safe or not safe are right there in the abdominal region. So a relaxed, soft belly is just a terrific way to inform the fight, flight, freeze regions of the midbrain that you're okay, you're safe. So soft belly, open chest. And then for that third complete in-breath, squinch the muscles in your face, squinch your toes, make fists, lock your jaw, just, you know, really tight, tight. And then as you breathe out, release the jaw, And just really soften the micro muscles around the eyes. And encourage your eyes themselves to take a break and to just recline comfortably in the eye sockets. If your eyes are not shifting behind your eyelids, 
if they are relaxed, then <clears throat> your mind will follow. So soft muscles in the face, open chest, soft belly, excellent tools to inform core regions of the midbrain that you are doing okay. Now that we've started the process of self-soothing, let's continue by setting an appropriate disposition for the mind. Bring to mind a place where you feel really safe and comfortable, a place you go to when you really like to have a relaxed, comfortable time. For many people, that could be a spot on the beach during the summer or a place by the river in a park. place in the country. Some place you associate with ease and comfort and security. And when you're there, what do you feel in your body, in your mind, while your body relaxes and your mind, while it feels the permission to not try to plan or jump into the future or solve any unresolved business. When we're at one of our favorite places, we just open to the actual experience and we just soak in, absorb the experience of just being there and being present. We don't abandon our experience, we open up to our experience. And that's the disposition we want to attain right now. And truly, we can have that any time we just relax the body and remind ourselves that we have the permission for a little while not to figure out or solve anything that we don't have to go anywhere, do anything, take care of anyone for the next 25 minutes. 
nowhere to go, nothing to do, no one to take care of except for ourselves. So for the next period, while we sit in silence for a while, just try to get as close as you can to the actual sensations in your body. Whatever you're feeling, it could be the contact sensations with the cushion, your hands on your legs or touching your hands. It can be the sensation of your body breathing. You can get really close to the sounds that are arising and passing. Try to remove any layer of thought or commentary or judgment about what's happening in this very moment. Just get as close as you can to the lived experience. Finding a nice balance between being alert and relaxed. If we're too relaxed, then we become sleepy. If we're too alert, we become anxious and jittery and jumpy. So you always want to find that middle ground or just awake enough but not too awake but not too or not too alert but alert enough. Lastly, when the inevitable occurs and a thought slips by your attention and grabs hold of your mind and awareness is sucked into a fantasy or a memory or a concern. That doesn't mean you've done anything wrong at all. It's natural. It's embedded through years of habits whenever we get to times in our life where we relax, we feel permitted just to allow the mind to wander. So it takes a lot of practice to get and train the mind just to stay present with what we're feeling. And the way we start this practice is by never adding any self-judgment or frustration or impatience because you're not doing anything wrong if your mind slips away. We just relax back into all the present sensations that surround us. The breath, the feelings, the sounds.
So I'd like to invite you now to bring to mind a recent disappointing experience, nothing too painful or definitely not something that was traumatic, but just a wounding or disappointing experience as in uh, negative exchange with someone, feelings of not being taken care of or included, anything that is fresh enough that it can still activate some form of disappointments and either sadness or frustration or anger or any just the emotions don't even have to have a name but they just are not particularly pleasant hold the image in your mind or just something that will trigger the underlying feelings of heaviness or agitation or whatever feelings are evoked by this disappointing event. And the goal is for us, instead of trying to get rid of the feelings whenever you find in your body or in your state of being discomfort, instead of resisting or trying to push away or taking it personally, just whisper in your mind, yes. Yes, not in I'm happy this is happening. Yes, in the sense of affirming this is your experience right now. The moment we stop resisting and just welcome, when we welcome the feelings begin to actually move through us. What we resist persists. What we simply welcome flows, moves through us, arises and passes. So we're developing the new approach of instead of adding a second form of pain to what is already uncomfortable, the pain of, oh no, I don't like feeling anxious or sad or lonely or frightened or angry. It's an okay, this is what I'm feeling right now. Yes, this is what's happening.
In greeting experience, we remove all of the disposition that I can't be with is in saying yes we remind ourselves that we can stay with any feeling and that their feeling will pass and very often pass far quicker than we have a tendency to believe And if you can find an area of your body that gets tight or contracted when you reflect on a negative experience in your life, maybe it's your stomach or your chest or a knot in your throat or slight area in the forehead that feels contracted or painful, find an area adjacent to the discomfort that doesn't feel that bad, right above it or below it, and breathe into that area. And then when you release the breath and you feel the softening of the exhalation, just allow that wave of release to move through the tightness and contraction. So if we feel hurt and abandoned by someone, we might often feel a tightness in the chest. So we might breathe just above that area and then when we breathe out, imagine the breath moving through the the emotional pain as it registers in the chest and just slightly relaxing with each out-breath. If we feel frightened of something, we might feel our stomach muscles tense and or some other area in the body might clench. Wherever you feel fear, just find an area that's not quite so tight. Breathe into it and then allow the ease to radiate out and through the contracted muscles nearby. Relaxing all the muscles around the body that are not. So release any tightness in the legs and buttocks and arms. So you're creating a very soothing container for whatever needs to be felt. 
whispering yes. You can even visualize the image of someone who cares about you, who you care about. Just imagine them looking at you with a compassionate expression and to see if you can cultivate feelings of care in your body and just allow that sense of care to be with you while you feel whatever needs to be felt. In a moment, I'm going to ring the bowl, and the request is when you hear the sound, to slowly open your eyes just enough to see the ground in front of you, and when you have the light and color and shapes, before you allow the mind to race out into the world around you, See if you can balance your awareness in such a way that you can integrate your felt experience with what's going on around you. The way to end the suffering, the craving brings to our life the self-abandonment that it brings is to keep some sense of the way your body feels with you. The more you're aware of how you feel, the more you can integrate it, process it, share it, disclose it, regulate it, learn from it. And that's where emotional health is founded. <laughs> 